Welcome to a new episode of Let's Shape the Future. I hope you're all having a great day. I am your host, Ben Dickinson, and for those that don't know, this is a show where I chat with business leaders, inspiring individuals, and more about who and what is shaping the future. If you enjoy, please leave a review, and also feel free to share your thoughts with me on LinkedIn or other social platforms. So without further ado, let's crack on with the episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of Let's Shape the Future. Um, Today's topic is centred around construction and we're joined by a really great guest as always. Um, Tim Coldwell is the president of Chandos Construction, an employee-owned construction company and a recipient of Canada's 40 Under 40, to name a few accolades. Um, Tim, firstly, congratulations for that award. And secondly, thank you very much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you. It's, uh, It's an honor to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. Thanks. And so did, did you want to take it back to the start? So so did you want to tell us a bit about how you originally got into the construction industry? Yeah, yeah. So um, I've got a I've got a pretty unique um, backstory. Um, and frankly, I haven't I hadn't been comfortable telling the story until more recently in my life. But um, to, to really boil it down, I grew up in a very conservative, religious sort of a community. So uh, I didn't see a television or I didn't watch television until I was like 14 or 15, um, was taught to fear people who were different. You know, don't talk to the neighbor's kids. They might corrupt you. Don't go get an education uh, that might corrupt you. Um, And be scared of people who have different ideas uh, than, than what we have. And so that was the environment. And, um, you know, I was growing up in the middle of nowhere in Northern Canada, uh, no video games, no TV, not going to a conventional school was homeschooled. Um, so like, what do you do for fun? And, you know, my saving grace is my mom taught me to read at a high level at a very young age. Um, so we'd go into town to the library and I couldn't take books out of the uh, non or the fiction section of the library. So I was in the nonfiction section I was taking old copies of Encyclopedia Britannica when I was like 10 years old and reading them cover to cover. And um, it just so happened that in that section of the library, the great classics were there as well. So Plato and Aristotle, Machiavelli, uh, Manuel Kant's critique of pure reason is one I remember. And and, um, I was into that stuff when I was 13 or 14, carrying it home under cover of darkness, reading with a flashlight, so to speak. And, um, you know, you just woke up, I woke up one day and I said, this is not right. Um, and, you know, you're a 15 year old boy and you're going to fight with your dad anyways, because that's what generally what you do. And, mm. and I left and um, I was out and on my own and I managed to get a full ride scholarship uh, to study engineering at the University of Alberta um, from the Mohawks of the Bay of Quinte. So I'm status uh, Mohawk. I didn't grow up in the community, obviously. And um, I got that scholarship. I got it uh, admitted into the University of Alberta. And then right around that same point in time, I applied for a job at Shandos. And I didn't have the best grades or the best experience, um, but they saw something in me and they took a chance on me. And I started with Shandos when I was, you know, 17, 20, 18, kind of an age. And um, I've been here for 20 years. And that's really how I got into the construction industry. Um, And, you know, I found a second family, a a sense of purpose, uh, a community in the construction industry has driven me over the years. It's it's a great story, I think. And obviously, I've got a load of questions to ask after, but but on that point, do you you try and sort of weave that culture of 
sort of seeking diamonds in the rough into how Chandos operates now? Yeah, I, I would say yes. And, you know, I, I can't take credit for um, all of the cool things that we do as an organization um, in terms of uh, impact in the world. Um, I'm the third president and uh, both of my predecessors in the organization had a strong focus on doing uh, well by doing good, you know, mm -hmm. just get expressed in different ways. Um, but certainly I like the idea of giving somebody who needs a hand, a chance, you know, they may not have the best grades. They may not have gone to the right school, but they're motivated and they're hungry. And if you help them, they will outperform anybody who went to the right school and had the best grades. Um, it's really what you do with the employee as opposed to the raw talent that the employee brings to the table. Um, and I, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that that's the philosophy that we use with every hire. There's, there's a, there's an appropriate mix to, 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 to aim for. Um, but certainly that ethos um, continues in the organization for sure. Mm. No, it's great. And I, I, I think it's personally, I think it's the way that businesses should all operate. Um, but so, so talking of Chandos, so for those that don't know, could you sort of provide a bit of an overview of the services that you provide as an organization? We're, we are, um, the best way to describe this, I guess, is probably to say we are a purpose-driven national technical builder in Canada. And so uh, the purpose-driven part uh, comes from us being 100% uh, employee-owned, single class of voting um, unit, actually we're an LP, um, and ownership is open to every employee in the company, including carpenters and laborers out in the field. Um, and it's the same uh, unit from a laborer in the field all the way up um, to the C-suite. And so that's very unique, um, that employee ownership piece. It drives the culture in the organization um, and drives purpose in the organization as well. And then the other aspect of purpose-driven um, would be uh, we're the largest B Corp certified contractor um, to our knowledge uh, in the world. And so we've been a B Corp, oh man, coming up in seven or eight years now. And the cool thing there is we really didn't need to do anything special to become a B Corp. A lot of organizations have to bend, you know, bend over backwards mm -hmm. to become a, a B Corp. But because of that employee ownership piece that we've always had, uh, it was quite simple for us. Um, so, so that's uh, the purpose-driven piece. Uh, national is simply that. So we were a national contractor in Canada. We have offices in uh, spread across the country. Uh, so Vancouver, Kelowna, uh, Calgary, Red Deer, Edmonton. Uh, Toronto and uh, Ottawa. Uh, we have about 500 employees. Uh, we're on for about 800 million of sales in 2021. Nice. Um, and we have a growth strategy. So we're the largest of the mid-sized commercial builders um, in Canada. And then technical builder is just our, our way of saying um, we're not the right contractor to build a warehouse in a field. You know, four walls and a roof. There are other guys that are better for that. Uh, we like complexity um, in our work. So it's, it could be complexity in the built form, like the uh, work that we're doing at Canadian Nuclear Laboratories with a research lab there. Um, or it could be complexity in, in rolling things out and stakeholders. So we're doing a national rollout um, of, of a series of fertility clinics across the country. Um, but complexity is our thing. Uh, we, really, we really thrive in that environment. Nice. And 
within Chandos, obviously you've held a number of key strategic roles. How has your career progressed over the 20 years that you've been there? And, and then what does your role as president entail? Yeah. Um, the, uh, I think the easiest way to come at this one is um, uh, I, I never really set out to become the president of the organization it was never really an overt goal that I had. Um, and I remember, Oh man, this is like 10 or 15 years ago or something like that. I met uh, Chris Hadfield uh, as a Canadian astronaut. He was up in the space station back in the day. And he did this talk at a thing that I went to and I had an opportunity to spend some time with him afterwards. And he talks about this idea of uh, food for thought, which is the idea of consciously putting things that are good for your mind into your mind. And he talked about, you know, always wanting to be an astronaut but knowing that uh, the chances of being an astronaut were quite low. And so what he did is he focused on the work and, you know, lots of young, young people get all wrapped around the axle on the idea of who they want to be. I want to be the vice president. I want to be the president. I want to be whatever. Mm. And it's not about the actual work you do when you're the president or the vice president. It's about how your friends see you and wanting to be cool and and that'll mess you right up and so my whole life it's always been about um the work and i've always had this kind of philosophy of if at the end of the day it felt like um it was five minutes and i forgot to have lunch then i'm in my happy spot and then when you're in your happy spot you're going to be exceptionally good at your job and then promotion and you know advancement comes as a byproduct of that um, not as a direct result. Um, so that's always been what I've done over the years. And so because of that, um, you know, I was a project coordinator. Uh, it's a very entry-level position. I did that for a while. Then I was a project manager. Um, then I was, a, uh, we called it a national accounts director. So I was kind of running uh, one of our major accounts across the country. Uh, and then I reinvented myself and I did regional business development. Uh, I did national business development. Uh, that we then added marketing to that role. Um, because of that, we added kind of, a, we call it, it's kind of like an R&D group that we have. Uh, we have project coaches and stuff now. So we added that to that role. Um, and then, you know, there's a conversation about, you know, we like Tim, he could put deals together. He's, you know, got lots of energy. I wonder if he can run um, a district and have P&L responsibility. So as a district manager uh, for a couple of years. And, um, you know, then uh, after a couple of years of that, uh, moved to Toronto and was appointed the president of the organization. And so that's kind of been the journey um, over the years. Um, but it's always been about focusing on the actual work that you love and staying in that sweet spot. And that's what's driven me. Yeah, it's, it's quite a good point, really. I think um, the sometimes I think, as you say, I'm probably guilty of it as well. I think young individuals, they they get too focused on the position they want to have in the future, the sort of the, the, the LinkedIn title they want to have and, and how they want to be perceived. Whereas I think there's a lot more that goes into getting to those positions than people maybe think. And um, I, I think younger individuals at the moment definitely see it as a, as a goal to have the title rather than to do the job well, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a video going around on LinkedIn these days um, about a professor, a business professor from Stern um, having a bit of a riff about um, how the adage, you know, uh, pursue your passions is a, 
is a bunch of BS. And, you know, I, I wouldn't totally agree with his point. His point is sometimes your passions don't line up with what you're good at. And your real job is to do the hard, difficult work to be really good at something. And then the passion will follow. And, you know, he uses examples of pro athletes and whatnot. Um, I, I agree that you have to do the work. Um, but if you don't like doing the work, I, it, it just doesn't go anywhere. So there's kind of the intersection of the work and what you're interested in. Um, and, but the main point there with, with him is that you have to do the work, you know, it's Malcolm Gladwell and that idea of 10,000 hours to mastery. Like you got to do that. That's five years. You can't even talk about being good at something until you've done it for five years. Um, so, so yeah, you, you got to do the work, but then it's interesting, you know, pe- some of the people who are like the best in the world at something like, you know, the absolute best, um, they might make a lot of money and they they have a lot of adulation as being the best, but they're deeply unhappy and they're often quite depressed because they get into this existential crisis about, you know, what's next? Like, what's the next thing? I've already achieved the pinnacle. And um, I think that takes you back to passion and how you find purpose and meaning in your work is really the the intersection of what you're passionate about, what you're excited about, and what you're good at. And sometimes you have to spend the time to be really good at the thing in order to get there. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, no, absolutely. I think it sort of ties into um, the sort of values that I can see um, Chandos has. So so I know that you you list that you're, the, the main key values are, are inclusion, collaboration, ingenuity, and innovation why those values specifically for, for Chandos and, and why is it then important for businesses in general to have these sorts of things at the core of how they operate? The first thing there is you have to be authentic about it. You know, there's, you know, a saying, um, lots of people have been quoted saying this, but um, Enron had all sorts of great values in the boardroom and on the walls. And they had great marketing campaigns talking about their values of integrity and whatnot. And we saw what happened with Enron and WorldCom and, you know, those sorts of organizations. So you have to be authentic about it. Um, but in, in terms of how we landed on, um, our articulation of values, like we, there's an infinite number of ways that we could have articulated, uh, the values of our organization. And um, I'm a big fan um, of Jim Collins, the guy who wrote uh, Good to Great, probably with the best business book ever written. And he has this idea uh, called Turning the Flywheel. And he wrote a follow-up monograph around it. And it's this idea of uh, a virtuous cycle. And so we thought about, well, what if we could express the values of Shandos um, as a virtuous cycle? And so that's uh, what we set out to do. So it all starts with inclusion. Uh, You got to get the right people in the room. And there's a whole thing about innovation. So a lot of how we create differentiation as, a, as an organization is through innovation. And you can't have innovation without diversity of thought. And you can't have diversity of thought without diversity of people. So, so anyways, you get the right people in the room um, and then you collaborate. Um, and um, the idea around collaboration is being open to the idea that you may not know. Um, come to it with a desire to learn. Um, and uh, so that's kind of our definition of that. And then when you collaborate and you're open to the idea that you might be wrong, um, that's where the spark of genius happens and that's ingenuity. And um, so, that's, so that's all great, but how many people do you know that have all sorts of ideas and they hang out at coffee shops with their moleskin notebook, writing ideas down, if only, if only, if only, 
and they don't do anything with those ideas. And innovation is about the courage to actually do something uh, with the idea. And so when you innovate, you actually do something, you move the organization forward, and then you need to involve a different group of people in the next iteration because the organization has now changed. Uh, so we think that's kind of an elegant way of, of communicating it. No, it is. And I think when you talk about things like the innovation where you think, oh, like the what if, what if, and just do it. I think I this podcast, for example, probably would have come around a lot sooner if I'd had the courage to just say, let's just do it earlier than I started this. And I think it's the whole to to succeed you need to fail but to fail you at least need to give it a go um and i think like for example as i say for for this example it it just shows that by by putting myself out there and then i'm able to speak to to amazing people like yourself um it really then when it when it comes to the next thing in in my job or my 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 life when i'm like oh what if i'll have a lot more confidence to then go into that so it's sort of like a like a snowball effect yeah 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 if you're not if you're not failing you're not trying hard enough it is another way of coming at that for sure um and and i'm not saying that you know you shouldn't do an analysis and actually kind of put your arms around the risk to understand what is the risk of if it fails horribly you know, it wouldn't be appropriate for us to bet the firm, so to speak, um, at Shandos on one particular innovation. Um, but I think the point is, is you got to have this willingness to try and fail and pick yourself up and dust yourself off and do it again. And if you don't, if you're scared of that, nothing will happen, right? Mm, yeah, no, definitely. And obviously earlier you mentioned that, that Chandos is... Um... B Corp certified and obviously um, we think the, the largest one in the world and, not, and I think it's the only one in Canada as well so did you want to explain a bit about what being B Corp certified actually means and and why is it important to you as an individual but also Chandos yeah there's a there's a lot of different ways I could go but I, I for I, I would say for us um, being B Corp certified is a third-party affirmation that we actually walk the talk. Like how many business leaders are there out there that are bleeding on about their ESG goals and all that good stuff and board members are prattling on about it um, while the organization isn't walking um, that talk. Um, you know, so it's, it's rooted in, in, in authenticity. And if we're going to say that we aspire to do things that are good for the world, we want a third party to actually confirm that we're actually doing those things. And, um, and so that's where the certification process um, comes in. And, um, you know, the, the cool thing about that is that as soon as you become certified, you get a score. And the scoring matrix that B-Labs uses moves every few years. And so they actually move the goalposts. So it becomes harder to keep the same score um, over time. And then back to like Tom Porter was the guy who talked about it, but you manage what you measure. As soon as you have a score, there's this internal desire to improve that score and make it better inside of the organization. And so, um, you know, after third party verification, I think the main benefit is that it drives uh, a desire and frankly a competition to continuously improve uh, what we're doing inside the organization so I think that's pretty cool mm, no it is I think 
it's great to see a, a company like yourselves who, as you say, really do walk the walk in terms of um, the, the ESG goals, the, the the social impact, the as I say, the social procurement, just all that sort of stuff. Um, and to, to that point, do, do Chantos have sort of social impact goals that you're working towards? Yeah, we, yeah, we definitely do. Um, we actually have uh, three main um, strategic differentiators, we call them. Uh, we think about strategy less as a red ocean sort of a thing where you're taking market share that already exists and more of a create market share where there was none. Um, and so we've got three major strategic differentiators. Um, I'll just unpack them quickly for you. So the first one we call B Corp Principles. Um, and that includes a uh, diverse workforce. Uh, so we have a goal to be one of the first contractors in the world, frankly, um, that looks like the society in which we operate. Uh, mm -hmm. So in Canada, 5% uh, of the population is indigenous, 22% uh, is uh, visible minority, uh, obviously 50% women, 13% uh, LBGTQ, and we aspire to look like that in all of the major uh, uh, functions of the organization at the board level, the management team and our operations team. Um, that is a staggering undertaking in the construction industry. I think something like less than 8% um, of operations staff on average in Canada are women as an example. Mm. So, so uh, we've got that goal there. Um, another one uh, that relates to B Corp principles is uh, carbon neutrality by 2023. Um, that one will be actually fairly uh, straightforward for us to achieve. Um, we're, uh, we certainly have a reduction program that drives behavioral change in the organization, um, but we're also doing uh, carbon offsets by planting trees. And uh, that's kind of cool. So as you plant a forest on year one, and you offset and on year two, it's still there. And on year three, it's still there and it's getting bigger and it grows over time. So it offsets more and more. So that's kind of a cool concept. Um, and then, uh, the, you know, the second uh, differentiator is uh, we call it industry transformation. So there's a whole bunch of stuff about supply chain innovation there that um, I could talk about if you're interested. And then the last one uh, is social procurement. And we joined with uh, SAP um, and made a commitment that 5% um, of our addressable spend uh, would be with impact organizations um, and diverse communities uh, within five years. And I think we're on track to surpass that um, probably end of this year. And um, so, yeah, those, those are some of the measurable goals that I kind of frame as strategic differentiators. And then those things get expressed in annual business plans and the compensation um, of our leadership team inside the organization so there's an alignment and an incentive structure that's uh, that's built around that for sure. Well, that's good to hear. I, th I think um, I hadn't thought about it like that in terms of um, compensation and leadership to align with those strategic goals, which is which, which is great. And I think um, there's a couple of points in response to what you just said. So recently on a, another episode, I spoke to um, a gentleman named Paul Taylor who runs um, something called Food Share Toronto. Um, oh, cool! Yeah, and uh, which is a, a non-profit, um, basically trying to um, distribute food to to people that need it and to um, people that um, suffer from from poverty and hunger. And it was quite interesting when you said about the the diversity and the the minority communities and and really trying to have those involved in your organisation because it, 
just trying to think of the stat he said, I think it was 5 million people in Canada who they target their service, services towards. But I think it was like, a, it was a ridiculous percentage of those that are from minority backgrounds or indigenous. So I think it's, it's so key for businesses um, to, to sort of have that sort of focus because there are still fundamental issues in society which can be majorly impacted by organizations having these sorts of initiatives to to drive these people into their workforce yeah yeah and uh, maybe i could just talk it's always interesting when i do these kind of kind of talks uh, you know aspirationally people really get what we're talking about and then that quickly hit the wall and like okay how do you do that and so maybe i'll just spend a second yeah of course um talking about that and and so i'm status mohawk and and so um have uh a connection to the indigenous community. Um, and um, I, I would totally agree with what uh, Paul is saying in that people from equity seeking groups um, are disproportionately impacted by the inequalities in society. So um, a good example of how we can tackle that and, uh, and it comes back to social procurement. So the construction industry is unique in that we can take somebody from an entry-level position pushing a broom and we can train them on the job and upskill them so that the sky is the limit. Um, you know, there are many examples of CEOs and chief operating officers and vice presidents um, in construction uh, businesses that started out pushing a broom and um, made it all the way to the top um, as a result of hard work and, and dedication and um, so, so yeah, there's that opportunity. So for us, um, and, and then the supply chain is big. We're building these buildings all over Canada. Um, so, you know, at 800 million of sales, um, that's a significant amount of purchasing that we do over the course of the year. Um, and, you know, we've got uh, 500 and some employees, um, but we only represent about 10 or 15% of the workforce on our job sites across Canada. So, uh, on any given day in Canada, there's, you know, probably north of 4,000 people working on Shandos job sites. And so that's a really interesting thing to kind of keep in mind. And that's when I include the workforces from our subcontractors. Um, but anyways, so we can, we can hire anyone to push a broom for $18 an hour on our job sites. Let's hire the kid that's riding the bus back and forth to school three hours a day trying to put food on the table, working two minimum wage jobs, trying to put food on the table for a brother or a sister because mom and dad aren't around. Let's hire that kid and give that kid a chance. And when we do that, we get a very loyal workforce. Uh, the productivity of those people that we give a chance, frankly, blows the doors off the productivity of, um, you know, call it just a conventional or, or a typical employee in the construction industry. Um, like there's examples of us, we gave, you know, one of our, we have a Syrian refugee on one of our job sites. And we literally have to tell these folks, you know, it's time to go home. Like 10 hours is too much, go home. Because they're just so happy with the opportunity that they have relative to with what they came from, right? So, um, so and, and, when, and when we do that, we get a, a loyal workforce. Uh, we put them in the apprenticeship program. Um, and apprentice carpenters make $24 an hour, you know, on average. Um and uh, Red Seal carpenters in Canada make anywhere from $35 to $38 an hour straight time, depending on where they are in the country. And that's with some overtime, that's pushing a hundred thousand bucks a year. And then they can move on to be general foremen. They can be superintendents. They can move into the office, be project managers. 
Um, so we can take someone who is on a path towards crime and or poverty in a matter of four or five years, give them a high paying job in the construction industry, and it costs us nothing to do that. We're going to hire those people anyways. And that's the benefit there. And what if, you know, 15% of Shandos's workforce in the future came from folks with that sort of a background. What could we do as an organization if that's what we did? Uh, that's the opportunity for sure. Mm, no, it is. As you say, there's there's so many benefits. It, it'd be amazing if, if so many other businesses followed suit. And and to, to that respect, obviously, you mentioned that obviously um, SAP and, and Chandos have, have both sort of um, said that they'll they'll put five percent of addressable spend to social enterprises and diverse businesses by 2025 and um how big an impact do you think that we could have on these sorts of causes and businesses if a load of other organizations followed suit oh yeah no i am you know, obviously sap is uh, a monster organization in terms of scale relative shandos but uh, back to the construction industry in Canada, if, if uh, and, and the federal government and well, as well as many municipal governments in Canada are doing this. So they're rolling out social procurement as a procurement policy uh, that taxpayer funded entities uh, will follow in Canada. And uh, it frankly uses selection criteria, say 20% of the selection criteria for the contractor is based on that contractor's willingness and ability to deliver community benefits to a local community. So how many at-risk youth are you hiring? Uh, kind of like the example I gave. Uh, so government is moving in the right direction, in my view, in terms of policy. And, and as, as I mentioned at the top of the show, you know, Shandos is, call it the largest of the mid-sized contractors in Canada, but there's five or six other major national contractors in Canada that are quite a bit larger than ourselves. The largest contractor in Canada's seven billion of revenue or something like that. Number two is pushing four uh, billion. Um, you know, number three is probably three billion. And so um, you add that up and you get to this, this absolutely massive supply chain just by grabbing the top 10 largest contractors in Canada. And, um, you know, I think there's something like 1.4 million people in the construction industry um, in Canada. Um, the top 10 major generals in Canada would be a big piece of that workforce. And uh, it gives you a sense of the opportunity here for sure. Mm, no, it, as you say, it, we, we need the effort to come from the top in terms of um, these organizations to, to get on board and, and really start to make a difference. And um, so just moving on slightly to um, the, the sort of current times that we live in. So obviously every industry has been affected in some way or another due to um, COVID-19, but could you give a, a quick inter insight into the, the, the magnitude of the impact on construction over the last year, please? Yeah, I, I think the, um, the, 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 the main, um, it, it depends on what part of the industry you're in. Um, so if you were a general contractor or a trade contractor that was building high-rise condos, downtown Vancouver, downtown Toronto, uh, you certainly will have felt it. Um, the demand for those uh, condos is dropping and people are wanting to move out to the suburbs. So um, that has not been good for that part of the industry. Uh, there have been a, a few regional short shutdowns of the construction industry in Canada, but for the most part, it's been deemed an, an essential uh, industry. 
and uh, construction projects have kept going across the country. Uh, now for us, over 85% of uh, our backlog is taxpayer funded work. And we build the kind of critical infrastructure that frankly is in the most demand uh, with what's happening right now with, uh, with COVID. And, uh, and then as also related to that, um, one of the policy positions that most governments have been using has been to do infrastructure stimulus spending uh, to uh, jumpstart the economy on mm -hmm. the flip side of COVID. And so we were already building the stuff that was in high demand and government is doubling down on their investments in that sort of work um, as a stimulus program. So uh, we're actually going to be in a good position here um, uh, through the pandemic. It's good to hear. I think, it's, as you say, it really does depend not only what industry, but also what you do within certain industries as to how badly you've been affected by it. And have you seen sort of on on uh, building sites and stuff like that, are you seeing a sort of extension in the timeline of, of a building project? Because, uh, uh, for example, um, you can't have as many people on site or people have to be so far apart. At the beginning of the pandemic, there was a lot of, I guess a lot of people didn't know, right? Like there's, you know, so there was a lot of um, rife um, theories about, well, we can't have as many people on the job site. They got to be socially distanced. We've got these extra safety precautions. It's going to impact productivity. And I remember the highest estimates of productivity impact were something like 40%, like in week two of the pandemic. And the construction industry is amazing in terms of our uh, resiliency to figure things out. Um, and the kind of stuff that we figure out on a day-to-day -day basis is bog boggle the mind of a lot of folks. So we've just figured out how to do that. And um, my sense of that is that there is some impact in productivity, but it's not anywhere near what people thought it would be. Uh, there was a lot of conversations about worldwide supply chains being disrupted, factory shut down. You can't buy widgets from whatever. There's a bit of it, but it is not um, the challenge that people first thought it was going to be. I would say at the most, there's a 5% impact on projects. And I would say at the most, there's been a lot of research done here in the last year around that. Um, and I think with uh, proactive management of how you plan and execute the work, um, that impact can be almost entirely mitigated. Yeah, no, I agree. I think um, obviously some things are going to be also we, we have seen um, be affected, but um, a lot of companies have found ways to to be resilient through these times and to sort of minimize the impact as much as possible. And in to, in that respect. In both the short, uh, in the short and long term, has the pandemic made Chandos have to sort of adjust their roadmap or their strategy at all? For sure, yeah. We um, we kind of call that whole exercise um, upside on the flip side. We kind of decided to coin it that way. So um, we, as I mentioned, we're heavily invested and do a lot of government funded work, and so we're in a good position to start. Um, and then I led a conversation. Uh, with our team internally. And we did a fairly uh, robust analysis of the Canadian economy uh, using you know, a data set that's publicly available. Um, and, and we actually um, went 
systematically through the different industries, um, the, the, the federal government in Canada has a standardized way of categorizing industries. And so we use that as a framework and we systematically went through uh, the various industries um, and made an assessment, uh, ideally based on the best data we could find in terms of whether that industry would have upside on the flip side of COVID or not. And so we gave it a green thumbs up if we thought it would be thumbs up or upside and thought red uh, arrow down if we thought it would be uh, downside. And then we looked at all of those industries that we think might actually benefit from this and said, how do we like pivot um, into those industries? Uh, so one example of that is that we have a group called a special uh, services group and it's uh, smaller, fast burn, quick um, projects. So a $2 million TI for a restaurant kind of a thing. And the hospitality industry just got hammered with COVID. So they're not building restaurants anytime soon. And so we pivoted that team out of that part of the market and said, you know what, um, heritage restoration um, and building envelope replacements um, are happening and continue to happen. Let's take that team and have them focus uh, in that part of the industry for a while. And then at the same time, we think that hospitality is going to come roaring back as soon as the pandemic restrictions are lifted and uh, people are going to want to go to the local pub and spend time with their friends. And so I think that industry is going to hit the stratosphere as soon as COVID uh, really gets dealt with here. And so we got to be ready to pivot back uh, when that happens. And so I think agility and adaptability are the most important things through this whole adventure. Mm, yeah, no, I agree. I think I um on a previous episode of the podcast, I spoke to uh, Mark Gallardo, who's a, a VP at Air Canada, and obviously airlines were one of the biggest hit industries in in um in the world, and um he was saying the exact same thing. It's all about agility. It's always it's all about um where can you put those people which maybe don't have as much work on now to focus, and then obviously move them back afterwards. So no, I. I massively think that's important and um are you finding that um just as time progresses and obviously um technology increases and and obviously with the pandemic as well is it more important now for businesses and construction firms in general to have a much more transparent visibility of a project's progress like the the cost the margins the business operations and that sort of stuff for sure. We, um, just a bit of context here, I should provide for the listeners. Most people think that the construction industry is like hiring someone to renovate your basement, right? So you, you, you sketch out what you might want to do. Maybe you hire an architect or an interior designer and you go talk to three contractors and you get three prices and you pick the one that you like and generally often has the lowest price. Yep. Um, that is not how most infrastructure is delivered. Um, there's a much more nuanced conversation um, around delivery methods. And while lump sum tendered work um, is probably 15, 20% of the, the industry in Canada, the majority of public infrastructure is delivered in some form of a collaborative delivery method. And then when that happens, the owner is really hiring the contractor to be at the table as a trusted advisor. And we get hired on generally on the basis of a percentage fee. And we go through the design process on an open and transparent audible, auditable basis so that the client um, knows what the real numbers are. 
And then at some point in the project, um, the price is fixed and the risk transfers back onto the contractor for execution. There's various delivery methods um, that accomplish that. But the point here is that we're being hired for our expertise in how to deliver these projects and how to access the local supply chain wherever the project is. Um, and, and frankly, to go find qualified trades and partners and vendors and suppliers to be at the table with us and to be there with the designers as they design the project so that we can make sure that the project being designed fits within the budget that the owners have. And, and so I, I give you that context to, to say that we think that transparency is the basis of a long-term trusting relationship with the client. Mm -hmm. And that's the best thing that we as a contractor can do to demonstrate to the client uh, that we're acting in their best interest and that the costs are the costs. Um, as soon as the client starts to wonder, am I getting the real goods from those Shandos guys? Is that really what it costs? You've pretty much lost them. And so transparency is key in that journey. As you say, it's, it's, it, it goes two ways, isn't it? You the, the business needs transparency of what the actual job will be, but also the customer needs transparency of everything the contractor is doing um, so that there is that sort of relationship being built, as you said. Yeah, and actually, just as you mentioned that, there's a, there's kind of a flip side for the owner. And because of some contractors you know, not behaving in the best interest of owners. And, you know, frankly, because the hard bid delivery method has driven that behavior um, over the years, you know, 20 years ago, 80% of the work was done on a hard bid basis and it's flipped. So today, 80% um, of the work is done on a negotiated business. Um, but that transparency comment I make applies to the owner. There are so many owners who say, I want to build an office building and I've got 80 million bucks. And they say to us, we've got 80 million bucks, but they're frankly, feeding us a line of nonsense because they really have 95 million mm. and they just don't trust a contractor enough to really put the cards on the cable and say, here's the business case. And they think that we're going to try to maximize and take every last penny that they've got. I think a more nuanced conversation is we have 95 million and we want these things in the building and we want the absolute maximum value that we can extract. And we're hiring you as a contractor uh, to help us do that. And frankly, we need to align your uh, compensation model so that you make more money as a contractor when you deliver highest value for us. That's the more adult conversation that needs to happen uh, in the construction industry for sure. Mm, no, it's, it's quite interesting actually. And um, where do you see the construction industry moving to? Is is there anything that the pandemic has caused that will do stay with you long term, or or what do you want to see in the construction industry in the future? I would say the major movement that has been going on for some time is a movement towards collaborative uh, delivery methods. So, so I, I talked about that already. Um, and related to that um, is a movement to what I would loosely call industrialized construction. So, um, you know, the construction industry, we basically stick build everything on site, downtown in some major city. And there's a huge opportunity, and we're doing a lot of interesting work in this space uh, to do prefabrication. Um, I'm not a big fan of what I would call volumetric modular, where you're stacking up blocks of the building that was prefabbed. Uh, it doesn't make sense for a whole bunch of reasons. 
Um, but to prefab major components of the building, exterior wall assemblies with the gold board on and the windows in and the peel and stick already applied, do that in a shop. Uh, mechanical electrical runs down hallways and through uh, vertical chases, uh, multi-trade runs, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. uh, washroom pods, uh, every washroom, you might have three different washrooms in a building. You can prefab those in a shop uh, with finishes installed, take them out to the site, swing them in with cranes. Um, I think that kind of uh, methodology is going to be more and more common in the future. And I think what that actually ends up meaning is that these subcontractors that we work with um, end up supplying less and less materials over the course of time. The general contractor will do more sourcing of materials and the subs will have more install of those materials in the field. Um, it'll be a tectonic shift uh, in the supply chain for sure. Mm, it's, it's quite interesting you, you say that. I, th I think it's quite a, a common goal for, for a lot in the industry. I think like there's... Um, it's the same sort of thing with car manufacturers as well. I think they're, they're keen to do a similar thing. And it sort of reminds me of um, kind of like a, a, like an Ikea sort of flat pack put together sort of yeah. mindset, which is, uh, which is quite interesting. It'd be, it'd be great to um, have a discussion in a couple of years to see how things like this have evolved. Yeah, there, there are contractors that are doing that. And in Europe, frankly, there's probably the, the cutting edge of that. Um, yeah, that the the idea of the flat pack and you go buy the kit of parts and you have it delivered to a job site and you assemble it, that's a great idea. The problem with that is that the entire supply chain in the construction industry needs to get reconfigured to make that feasible. And that's a massive undertaking. Um, there are a couple of contractors that are quite large, um, backed by uh, SoftBank's um, equity that are playing in the space. Um, they've been losing money like crazy, um, but they're trying to transform that supply chain. And I think it's just a matter of time uh, until that chain, supply chain starts uh, to tip. And uh, it'll be really good for the industry when that happens. I, I would also say that that kind of supply you know, that, that prefab thing, a lot of people get all excited about that as strategy. I, and, and they get excited about that as, as kind of a disruptive innovation. I don't know if how disruptive that is. I, I would categorize that as more of a continuous improvement mm -hmm. and as things that you need to do as a contractor just to keep up. Um, disruption for me in supply chain is redefining the relationships in the supply chain. So a good example of that is is uh, Toyota, where they'll go out to their supply chain and they'll say, I want to buy disc brakes or something from a couple of uh, vendor partners. And they share in the economies of scale with those partners and they co-invest with each other. And so they'll put their engineering staff with the vendor and vice versa. That kind of uh, teaming and uh, arrangement is not common in the construction industry. It's very transactional. We go out to the market, we get six different proposals, we pick somebody and we're working with them on this job this week and someone else on a different job next week. So you don't really have the opportunity to grow and develop and learn how to work together. And so um, I think that the industry will really get disrupted when contractors start to think um, about alliance models all the way through their supply chain, as opposed to the transactional stuff that seems to go on these days. Yeah, but it'd be really interesting to see how that progresses over time and see if there is more of a 
more of a partnership model that that's formed in in your industry um mm. so, so tim i just want to say it's um it's, it's been an absolute pleasure to, to have you join me today i hope you've enjoyed the conversation as, as much as i have it's been it's been really insightful to hear about yourself and and the construction industry during during current times so so thank you so much for joining me yeah it's been my uh my pleasure and um yeah uh, best of the best of the week for you for sure <laughs> Another episode of Let's Shape the Future is complete. A big thanks to Tim for joining. Um, it's great to have such senior executives join me to discuss trends in their industries. Um, we're continuing season two with some great guests coming up. So please subscribe to the podcast, leave a review and share the show if you enjoyed. Have a great week, guys.